0: Hello and welcome to the new Wealth Manager podcast, where we grill the UK's top fund managers. I'm Dylan Lobo, online editor at Wealth Manager and your host for the day. I'm delighted to be joined by CityWire AAA rated Paul Jordan, manager of the TB Amati UK Smaller Companies Fund.
1: Hello, thanks for
0: having me on. Well, thanks for joining us today, Paul. Um, We've actually just done a data crunch at CityWire and you've come out as the most consistent of the 15,000 or so fund managers we track. Having been triple A rated for 45 consecutive months. Wow, um, let's, just, let's just let that sink in. How does how does that make you feel? Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that's
1: that's fantastic, I, and I hadn't come across that statistic until you told it to me. So, um, thanks for passing it on. But um, yeah, I mean we have to always look forwards and what's coming next. And in a way, um, being a fund manager, we talk a lot about performance, which is what I used to think a lot about when I was a musician, and you're always worried about what comes next, so we never sit on our laurels.
0: No, I mean, let, let's just look in percentage terms at the, um, the, at the fund itself. It's returned 382% over the last 10 years, and um, according to our data, versus 215% in, in the peer group. Do you feel like you've overachieved? Did you envisage this kind of return 10 years ago?
1: No, I, you, never, you never quite imagine that. And it would be, it'd be wrong if I said, yes, I, I thought that's what could happen. But we're, we, we um, recognise that we're dealing with an asset class that has enormous potential. And, and if we get things right, the rewards are fantastic. It's not easy to do that. And there are periods of time when it's impossible to make those kind of returns. And you never know when those periods are going to come. Uh, yeah, the last 10 years was a very rich period for investors.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, you said you, said you were lucky. At the beginning, ten years ago, um, conditions were very different. We just had the you know, it was the start of the well the the, the the start of the end of the credit crunch, right? So, so so QE has probably helped you quite a bit. Is that fair to say?
1: QE has has been a phenomenal success in terms of reflating asset markets. That's for sure. And so yes, of course, QE has been a huge tailwind. Not one that everyone was very comfortable with ten years ago, and it was a new concept to a lot of us. Not something we'd lived through before. So. There was a lot of nervousness about how it would play out. And I think it's fair to say that it's, it's generally speaking, exceeded people's expectations for, for its impact. And I, mean,
0: yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't want to wish you any ill um, going forward, but um, is there any way down from here? Are you worried that investors are going to expect this kind of eye-watering return the next 10 years?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you, you, you can never make predictions about what's coming next. They're, they're going to be reliable, and you can never assume, of course, that when you've had a very rich period of returns, that that's going to repeat. So that's so why I'm saying we, we, we try not to look backwards in, in making investments, always look forwards and imagine what might come next. It's always right to expect the unexpected.
0: Yeah, now, now people listening to this, Paul, are going to be wondering, how have you done this? Can you explain your process in a nutshell?
1: Well we do a lot of hard work on all the companies that we invest in. We, we see ourselves in many ways uh, like traditional craftsmen. Imagine a violin maker in a workshop uh, spending, having spent years how, learning how to make a beautiful instrument. We feel a bit like that constructing portfolios of investments. It takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of experience and knowledge and we apply that to our funds. Oh, I
0: mean, lots of violin references here, but we'll come on to that a little bit later. Um, just, just, just Recently, we last week, in fact, we, um, Wealth Manager wrote a story about you, Marty Hi's first analyst, um, an independent life scientist consultant by the name of Dr. Gareth Glades. I mean, blades, why, yeah. Sorry, Glades, blades. Glades, sorry. But B with blades. with. A B. Oh, it's a, it's a blade, sorry, yeah. Dr. Gareth Blades. Um, why, why have you h- decided to hire an analyst now and did you really need him? Oh, um, you've been doing pretty well. Does this mark some kind of strategic shift? It's really recognising the fact that
1: I think when, when a business gets to a certain point, uh, A, you have to start thinking about training other people. And it's, it's the right thing to do in a company to have a training programme to bring on the next generation of talented managers. And we, we've been thinking also about how we, in the long run, create a succession plan in our business. And clearly, a very good way of doing that is to hire people and train them to have the skills that you have, and to pass on the knowledge that we have, and uh, hopefully, in you know a, a period of time, we'll have more than one analyst who are capable of taking over our roles. That's that's the idea. Okay, so
0: there's no particular reason. Did you particularly look for a life science? Well, I, I did. I was
1: looking for a life sciences person because well, somebody with a life sciences background, preferably a PhD. And in fact, the the first company that I the company I got my first job in as a fund manager was a company called Stuart Ivory in Edinburgh. And they had a bit of a policy of hiring PhD graduates. And I thought, actually, this is a really good policy. And because somebody with a PhD has research skills, which are essential for our job, and is also a bit more likely to know what they want to do in life. When you're an undergraduate, you might try out lots of things afterwards. So clearly, we're hiring with an intention
0: of training somebody and keeping them for a long time. So it felt like the right way to go. I mean, you mentioned succession planning there. So listeners will be a little bit worried, especially, you know, investors in your fund. Are you... Are you thinking of um, you know packing in? I'm, anytime I'm not soon? thinking of
1: packing in any time soon, but obviously one day I'm going to have to pack it in. But uh, not not any time in the foreseeable Still future. Still at least another ten
0: years in you. Yeah,
1: but you have to plan a long way ahead. Training somebody, training people takes a long time, and we don't know who or how what the future looks like. But we know we want some we want some capacity in the business, and and we want to be able to have um, internal
0: talent and get it when we need it. I mean, speaking of capacity, the smaller end of the market which you focus on is um, traditionally or typically less liquid. And liquidity is very much the buzzword at the moment with the FCA producing a big paper on the subject yesterday. How liquid is your portfolio?
1: It's pretty liquid. We have a, a weighted, we look at one way we monitor that is we look at the weighted average market capitalization of the companies in the portfolio. And that gives us quite a good idea about if we needed to liquidate the portfolio, what kind of size of companies on average are we dealing with? And our weighted average market cap is about eight to nine hundred million, has been that over the last year, a year and a half, maybe two years. And that to me indicates that we've got actually plenty of liquidity in the portfolio. Of course, what you have to reckon on is when we go into a liquidity crunch, as we did 10 years ago, and this is very hard to estimate, is that then, of course, liquidity completely changes. So all your calculations have to be rebased. So when thinking about liquidity, you have to leave quite a lot of margin of error. And I think we've, we, we've done that.
0: Can you define that margin of error?
1: Yeah, I actually wrote a paper on this, and the exact numbers are on our website, analysing exactly how many days we could liquidate, what percentage of the portfolio. Um, but with a portfolio like ours... You know, within um, within three or four days, we could liquidate a large chunk of it if we wanted to.
0: That's reassuring. Um, it's a better position than some in the industry. And Amartya uh, is a VCT business. And uh, do you do you leverage off this business and to to invest in unquoted stocks in your fund?
1: We don't invest in unquoted stocks. No, and and clearly. As as you see, if if you read the paper on our website, I think an open-ended fund, and I've said this for many years, not just recently, an open-ended fund is the wrong structure in which to hold unquoted investments. So it's very important when managing any kind of portfolio that you have the right structure for the kind of investments you want to do. And our VCT actually also doesn't really make unquoted investments. It only invests on AIM. But because it's investing in much earlier stage businesses on AIM, it needs to be a closed-ended fund, and it has the right structure for doing that.
0: So you wouldn't ever invest in an unquoted, unquoted stock for your for your open ended fund?
1: No, 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 we wouldn't do categorically. That. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, all right then. Well, well, let's 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 look back on the, the last ten years again. And and uh, can you pick out one investment that uh, you're, you're you're very proud of? Your greatest investment? I mean, your greatest investment of all time, if you like. <laughs> You've got to choose one.
1: Oh, that's a really really <laughs> tough question. I mean, I, what well, I maybe should. Point out was was in, we run the fund as a team, so I'm going to I mean drawing on the whole team's investments here. But our, our most profitable investment over the last ten year period, interestingly, was not in a high tech sort of dot com, um, whizzy, kind of you know new new markets kind of business, which one might have expected. It was actually a company called AB Dynamics, uh, which we bought in the VCT when it floated at about eighty seven p, and uh, AB Dynamics was a, a long-standing family-owned engineering business that was involved in testing vehicles and uh, testing two types of testing but in particular testing for uh, crashes and so when we invested in it we thought well this is a good solid business it's it's a great company for the VST to hold we had reasonable expectations but we weren't necessarily expecting it to shoot the lights out and over the first three years it made a nice return but it it, was, um, it, it, wasn't as, it wasn't necessarily spectacular. Uh, then, of course, uh, the, the, the huge demand in automotive um, the industry for new types of vehicles, whether they're autonomous vehicles or electric vehicles, has driven uh, a vast increase in the amount of crash testing that's required as all these new vehicles are planned. And AB Dynamics business has, has, has flourished in a way that has you know, exceeded all of our expectations. And the shares now trade over £20. Um, and we've, we've taken a little bit of profit in the VST, but we bought it in other funds. It's in the We put it into the Small Companies Fund uh, a few years ago, and we hold it in our um, IHT portfolios that we manage for people, AIM well, portfolios. Well done.
0: Great investment. I, I can't ask you what the, the best investment has been without asking you what the worst has been.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, we like to forget They've our... They've all our, been great. Well, our, uh, yeah, You're not allowed to forget <coughs> them now. <there>. Our Doff <laughs> investment. And, uh, yeah, our worst... Our worst investment over the last 10 years was a company called Silverdale. And that was one that, um, as, as you learn when you, one of the key things we have to learn as small company investors is how to spot things that go horribly wrong, uh, frauds in other words. And this was one that got through our net and it had a, very, had a much bigger balance sheet problem than we had seen. And overnight, shares were suspended and it was kind of lost without trace. And That was a bit of a shock. It's a very rare event. Normally, we manage to weed those things out. That was one that we missed. I
0: and mean, how, yeah. I mean how, how do you think they? I mean, they, they, you, you must have learned quite a sharp lesson from that, and it's a mistake you, 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 you won't you won't repeat. Kind of, what is what is what is the biggest lesson you've learned? Uh, well,
1: I would say, uh, as a, I as mean, a fund it's, manager, it's one of one of our. Uh, well, as a fund manager, may be different, but in respect of in respect of defending positions and mm-hmm. i mean i suppose it's why we we try to place a lot of emphasis on investing in in as higher quality companies as we can find and in, in the end quality is much more important than price to us yes we like to buy companies that are cheap and good value but more importantly we want to buy businesses that have got real potential and, and real qualities and so so it, i suppose in a way that's it's shaped our thinking profoundly and those, those kind of examples where we get it wrong and something turns out to be much lower quality than we thought, well, it's a mistake. But you know, our whole philosophy of like is oriented to being able to identify real quality in companies.
0: I mean, so a small cap, is, it's a really interesting area and it's sort of a different process you would employ to say compared to large caps. But is it possible to speak in simplistic term, terms? So what is the, the strongest buy signal and what is the, the strongest sell signal? In small
1: caps I, I, I don't think it is so different from large companies and, and, and funny kind of way I think small company fund managers would have a better chance if you like going to large companies than the other way around as there's, there's in when you're managing small companies you have to look at a lot more detail of, of that particular business is available and you have to look at all of it and um, but then the kinds of things which make good businesses or bad businesses are the same between the two so I mean in terms of indicators you know we pay a lot of attention like many investors to things like um analysts earnings revisions is is you know if it's a very popular but a very key indicator it's certainly something we pay a good deal of attention to it's almost impossible for a share price to go up if the earnings of that company are, the earnings estimates are being revised downwards
0: okay so um well, you, you, you talk a fantastic game you've got the the numbers um Sort of behind you to to, you know, to talk with this authority, but in, we, we're constantly hearing about how tough it is for active fund managers at the moment with regulatory pressures from from MiFID to the FCA's asset management study, along with the rise of ETFs. I mean you, you seem to make it look easy although I'm sure it's, it's not as e- that, not as easy as the numbers suggest, but are these underperformers just looking for excuses? Or is it really tough for fund managers? Well, though? you know, managing money is
1: never easy and it's a huge responsibility and, and one has to take it very seriously and, and you can never take for granted that you're going to be successful, however much experience and knowledge you've got. It's, it's, uh, it's a business of managing risks and one can't always get that right. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think um, th- th- there are no silver bullets in, in the business, um, but experience does count for a lot. And... Um,
2: uh, at
1: the end of the day, we, our, our, our skill is about understanding the businesses we invest in as well as we can, and whether they're small or large, That there's no substitute for doing the work, which builds up that understanding. And I suppose I, I have some some worries about the growth of the passive industry. It, I've got no worries in, insofar as it doesn't exceed a certain level, but it, it doesn't often get discussed this. But there is a th- theoretical level, which nobody has really quite defined where this is, at which point the market just becomes too dumb. If you have nobody studying what the companies do and how much they're worth, then uh, then passive investment doesn't work. It needs passive investment requires an active market in order to have prices to follow. And indexes require an active market so that the best companies get promoted and people recognise them and active investors buy them. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm remain a massive believer in active fund management and and at the end of the day fund managers justify their resistance by allocating capital sensibly and in a a prudent and accurate way and if you remove that function too far from the industry the industry just won't work
0: so so do you have some sympathy for these these younger fund managers out there who are just you know starting to cut their teeth in in this industry where you didn't have the same pressures that, that that they do um, you know, or, or did you?
1: I, th- I think we did. Yes, I mean the, the pressure is always there for anybody who's a fund manager, uh, and and you have to learn by making lots of mistakes. Unfortunately, that's that's
0: uh, we that's how life works. So, so, so to answer my question, there is no excuse for underperformance.
1: <laughs> that's a little bit <laughs> brutal. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, there's, there's there's no excuse for being too short-termist. I would say. I mean, we have to. Investment is not, no, no fund manager can guarantee good performance all the time. Uh, of course, that would be a completely unrealistic expectation. So w- w- we have to make rational decisions based on knowledge of companies and assessment of risks. And I think as long as we're doing that um, diligently and with skill, it, the results will come out in the end.
0: So, so based on your experience, Paul, what, what advice would you give to, to budding young fund managers out there? One, one piece of advice?
1: Mm. Um, well I I would say remember this is a huge privilege to do this job yes it's difficult Um, I I think one of the things that I have been very struck by over the years and and this might sound too theoretical to you when I say it but I think it's it's of wider importance that um, there's a branch of philosophy called epistemology and it's the study of knowledge and there's been debates over centuries and centuries about how we know stuff And when you're a fund manager, you're confronted every day with an epistemological challenge. How do you know that your investments are the right ones? And I'd say that actually we have to take quite a modest view. You learn to take a modest view when you're a fund manager of how much you can know, how much you can predict the future. So to to some degree, when we're predicting the future, we're all clutching at straws and our knowledge is always limited and just operating with an understanding that our knowledge is limited is really important so that you don't grow overconfident and you don't you know very often it's the things you're most confident about that are wrong and that's that's kind of humbling as a as a person
0: it is And, and i'm talking about clutching at straws and and not knowing what the future holds we are actually coming to the end of this interview paul and we haven't mentioned the b word sorry but we're going to mention it now and and we have to i mean it would be um um, I miss not to, and I know you small cap guys, you you very much all about the micro. Do you have a view on Brexit?
1: Yeah, of, of course, and, and in particular, we have a view of how, how do we handle this degree of uncertainty as fund managers? Um, and we've taken the view a little bit like I was just saying, we don't know which way this is gonna work out, and we don't know what's gonna happen. So we're not trying to take too definitive a view on, I think this is gonna happen, so I'm gonna put all my eggs in that basket. We very much run the portfolios, thinking through all the scenarios of what could happen, it's not just Brexit that we have to think about. It's what happens. But you're a couple of steps down the road, do we get a change of government, which might then introduce a really profound change of in the way the country is run. Um, we might suddenly find that um, you know, the, the country is run in a way that is much, much less market-friendly than it, we, we ever imagined it might have been. So we have to manage the portfolio anticipating some of the things that can come up. And we, we do that by... First of all, saying, well, we don't know, we don't know what's going to happen, so let's not, put, let's not go overboard, but let's make sure that if this happens, we have some stocks that will be right. If this happens, we'll have other ones that will be right. So we, we, spread, we spread the risks and create diversification by having thought through lots of different scenarios.
0: So have you neutralised Brexit risk?
1: I wouldn't say we've neutralised it, but we've certainly mitigated it pretty substantially.
0: But I'd imagine a no-deal Brexit is not good. Not good for
1: no I, small I, caps I, large caps well anyone I mean, some people in the city <laughs> think it would be brilliant i personally don't think it would be brilliant i'm, I'm it's not something i relish at all but I, I yeah i think it could have lots of short-term disruptive and maybe long-term disruptive consequences um so uh, yeah we've taken a lot of account of it in the way we run the funds
0: is this the trickiest period for you as a fund manager right now with all the, the political uncertainty out there
1: i mean the trickiest period for me as a fund manager was 2008 that was profoundly when we had we experienced a a major major crash and and nobody had any clue whether we were going to we were going to come out of it the other side and it was that was properly scary i I think what's going on now this uncertainty the reason why it's painful uncertainty is because we don't know whether it leads to something like that we're not in right now we're not in that position there's lots of good opportunities the uk is doing pretty well um, you know America's on track in, for economically, so it's prospering. There's lots of prosperity around and, and you know the economy's not out of control in any sense. So when we think through these political um, elements, we're thinking about the potential what happens if if and if this, if this happens or that happens? And do we go back do we have some recurrence of a situation like we had in 2008? And obviously you know, people who've been in the market a long time fear that. and that's, so that will drive a lot of market behavior. And so, in a sense, in terms of planning what might happen, we're thinking: well, if this happens, it's too late to respond when it's happened, because the markets, by that stage, everyone goes one way. So we have to anticipate lots of different kinds of market behaviours that might be coming so, up.
0: So, are you bullish?
1: I'm, I'm, always bullish in, to a degree. You have to be an optimist if you're a fund manager, and you know, it never pays to to get, you know, so bearish that you would well, just. Stick your head in it. And there are periods when, when the market really gets into a tailspin, that's the most important time to be bullish. Right now, though, we, we also have elements of caution and we're not, we're not trying to be overconfident. We recognize there are lots of risks around and, and we're trying to take account of them and make sure that we have things in the portfolio that will do well if, uh, if there are certain um, negative scenarios that happen.
0: Do you have a best idea that, that, that that's going to provide some kind of shelter if things get really nasty?
1: Well, I mean, so let me give you a couple of ideas. One, our largest holding in the Small Companies Fund at the moment is Intermediate Capital Group. Uh, It's a fund management business. It is based in London. So, yes, it's a UK company, but it operates globally. Uh, It's been incredibly successful at raising funds for um, slightly alternative asset classes, uh, which are in huge demand from the world's largest institutional investors, big pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. And those investors are not going to be put off by Brexit. And, and they're, they're making the Intermediate Capital Group run bond funds, they run uh, mezzanine debt funds, they run infrastructure-type funds. And those are going to be, in, so I'm sort of trying to say this is a very, very resilient, and it's a scenario that should remain positive even if a lot of things go wrong. Um, you know, another holding, let's assume that Brexit isn't a big problem and it blows over and things work out well in the UK gets on just fine, which is what we hope, then we have a holding in um, a very interesting bank called One Savings Bank, which is a specialist buy-to-let mortgage lender. All of its lending is secured. We think they're exceptionally good at what they do. They're just about to merge with another very good specialist buy-to-let mortgage lender called Charter Court, And we think that creates a very strong proposition, which is exceptionally cheap right now and, and should do incredibly well in the other scenario where our worries don't turn out to be well-founded and, and 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 things kind of go back to
0: normal okay and um on a more altruistic note paul i, I understand you give 10 percent of your firm's profits to charity is that correct we um, do yes yeah. nice.
1: when, when we started amati it was one thing that if you're going to do something like that you have to build it in right at the beginning when you have no idea if you're ever going to make any profit <laughs> or not and when we started, you know, Douglas Lawson and myself, who were the two fund managers, we we didn't know if we could pay ourselves, let alone make a profit. And uh, it, but we thought, let's build this in because um, it's 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 just a, a way of operating that I think is um, you know fund management businesses can afford to do, and um, it, it builds it creates the right kind of culture for our business, I think, and it, it it means that we remember we have wider responsibilities
0: as a business. Can you give an example of a charity you've supported?
1: Yeah, we've we supported lots and lots of charities. And so actually, the way we work is, it's it's the, the, the way the decision process gets gets made is that um, the the owners of the business, this was a, an idea I pinched from Warren Buffett, actually, who tried to introduce this to Berkshire Hathaway many years ago and did for a while. The owners of the business choose where the money goes in proportion to their ownership. So I get to choose where the, the donations go for my bit of the business, Matt Earlywood's do for their bit, the other... Um, senior managers and partners in business get to choose where their bits go so it gets very widely distributed and everyone can support the the charities they're they're involved with and I'm I'm very involved with a charity called Systema Scotland which is a music education stroke social project um, that takes really intensive um, music education projects into some of the uh, most deprived communities in Scotland and has done so with incredible effect. So I'm very proud to be involved in that.
0: Wonderful, and um, I, mean, I guess that gives you um, some some form of peace of mind. And and there is an increasing awareness of um, mental health in in the funds industry. And we've already we've already talked about you know, maybe some of the stresses that fund managers have at the moment. Um, well, I mean, what I'd like to know I mean, how, do, how does Paul Jordan relax? And um, how does he how do you right. make sure that mean? Make, make sure you're yeah well right. you know just keep your mind fresh right. and uh, for the challenges and make sure you're you're on an even keel and, and and keep delivering the goods for investors because because that is really important yeah managing no, it's, your it's stress levels important. so yeah, what, it what is. do you do it's
1: a stressful business and be, being aware that you, you you have to manage stress levels is absolutely key so you know, clearly i i once you once you're a musician you never stop being a musician so you know one of my most cherished ways of relaxing is to is to play music which I still absolutely love playing I play the piano and the violin the violin was my career um I, I'm still involved in lots of musical organizations of which System of Scotland is one I, I used to as a kind of um hobby really I I I, I love teaching when I was a violinist so I used to on the Saturdays I, would, I took on a pupil who I taught for about four or five years um just to keep my hand in at teaching the violin um, so and obviously I play sport and I do things which keep me healthy. Um, I'm not brilliant at those things, but I love them. Um, but you know, music remains my passion and, and one of my my best ways of relaxing.
0: And I, and I understand you you've um, actually recorded a little piece for us um, to, to to help us eat, maybe ease us all from from this, this Brexit tension. So um, I think we should sign off now, Paul, by um, listening to this. Piece that you've recorded for us. Um, can, can you tell us what the piece is?
1: Yeah, the piece is is it's it's um, the very first movement of uh, the first unaccompanied sonata written by uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, who, for musicians like myself, is the composer who is uh, we're constantly in awe of, and whose uh, music I just go back to continually for nourishment and refreshment. And th- this piece sets out on a vast journey of unaccompanied violin music. Six. Sonatas and Partitas, in total, and it's it's one of the uh, holy texts, if you like, of violin the violin repertoire. And this is the very first movement.
0: Wonderful. So I I think we should all just all sit back now and and enjoy this piece that you you've done for us. And and, um, thank you so much for a a very fascinating interview this afternoon, Paul. Great pleasure.
2: Thank you. Thank you.